Welcome to The Breakdown with Broadco and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Broadco. Becky is off this week for her fancy wedding, so we'll be back on the podcast next week. Joining me today on the podcast is our special guest host, Jeff Cole. Mike Zipko also joins me for this episode. Mike has worked in the media and then worked in politics for a number of years, including both for the Republican Party of Minnesota as well in communications under Norm Coleman and Governor Arnie Carlson. He was also a part of the transition team for Governor Jesse Ventura. Mike is a principal at Velocity Public Affairs, where Becky currently works and where I have done some contract work. Mike has appeared on this podcast in the past, and we rely on him to provide analysis and commentary on the media and public relations. In this episode, we continue our important conversations about the Israeli-Hamas war and related local issues by speaking with Ethan Roberts of the Jewish Community Relations Council for Minnesota and the Dakotas. We're going to discuss a couple of topics with Ethan. First, we will break down the anti-Semitic resolution from the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, Local 59, about Israel and Palestine that has generated widespread controversy and justified outrage. Second, we're going to discuss with Ethan his perspective on the media coverage of the Israeli-Hamas war. This is the third episode of our podcast on the Israeli-Hamas war since the October 7th terrorist attacks by Hamas on Israel. We spoke with former U.S. Senator Norm Coleman for an episode released on October 17th, and we interviewed Jacob Milner with the American Jewish Committee for an episode released on October 24th about the ongoing threat to Israel and Jews in America, along with the rise of anti-Semitism. Today's episode with Ethan is incredibly powerful, and I hope you listen to every word spoken by him. We will provide links to our other podcast episodes on this topic in the description for this show. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you are moved by Ethan's words as much as Jeff, Mike, and I were during the recording. Thank you. Pleased to be joined today by uh, Ethan Roberts with the JCRC. We're going to talk about a number of issues related to the Israel-Hamas war and some other issues that have arisen from that, some of which are local. And so, Ethan, thank you for joining us today. Appreciate you taking time to talk with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate um, you inviting me to be on the show. I want you to take a minute to uh, give our listeners a little bit of background as to who you are in your organization and, and why we're talking today. Sure. Um, I'm the uh, Deputy Executive Director for the Jewish Community Relations Council of Minnesota and the Dakotas. Since 1939, we have been the consensus public affairs voice for our Jewish communities. What we want to break down first is we want to talk about a resolution that was brought forward uh, and submitted and posted online by the Minnesota Federation of Teachers about, the as, as they describe it as, the Israeli and Palestinian resolution on Israel and Palestine. And Jeff has been a frequent guest of the podcast and has appeared also as a co-host. Jeff is involved in matters related to some city council, local election issues. Mike is a PR whiz. But Ethan, I want to just give you the floor and talk about this resolution that was put forward by the Minnesota Federation of Teachers from your perspective and this organ in your organization's perspective, why it's so concerning. And we'll chime in and, and add some uh, discussion points to it. Sure. Well, um, so our concerns are the concerns of the hundreds of Jewish parents who've reached out to us, as well as um, over a dozen teachers, both Jewish and non-Jewish, of the Minneapolis public schools, who um, first and foremost are wondering, um, wondering is probably too weak a word, um, they, they 
just simply don't understand why the union felt it was necessary uh, at this time to weigh in um, on the conflict and weigh in on the conflict as they did. So that's that's the first concern. So before we even start parsing the language that they use, right. um, the threshold question is, why? Why get involved? I, I, I can assure you that nobody in Gaza City or Jerusalem was waiting for the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers to, to weigh in on this conflict. Um, so they have no impact um, on the actual um, fighting and, and what's going on over there, but they have a tremendous impact on what kind of cultural kind of environment um, uh, exists at their schools. And that the resolution comes at a time of you know, 400% increase in anti-Semitism this time since October 7th compared to October 7th of last year. And we have, we were thinking, we were talking about this this morning at one of our meetings. We have a staff of 12 people at the JCRC. Nine of us are working on anti-Semitism as it relates to our schools. Nine of us. Um, we have probably spent thousands of hours collectively between the nine of us on this. Um, students are, are being bullied, harassed, threatened. Um, I have spent time at suburban police stations with mothers and 12-year-olds. Um, and much of the hate uh, is coming um, from social media. And that's like a whole other conversation. Um, some of it comes from just media, mainstream media. Um Honestly, not much of it at the K-12 level um, comes from teachers, right? Not much of it comes certainly from the union reporting to represent teachers. And so if you think about, uh, and Jews, I mean, we're a tiny minority in the state and, and even in the district of Minneapolis. So if you're one of a handful of Jewish students who is already dealing with bullying and harassment um, at school and has been dealing with that for six, seven weeks at this point, the last thing that student needs is another student feeling that they're justified in that hate, in that position, based upon a position taken by the teacher's union. So this is making the situation much worse. And, and, and it's not also just about the students. It's also about teachers, right? About, about Jewish teachers who, and, and, and teachers and students who are hiding that they're Jewish, right? Hiding symbols that they're Jewish. And really are, are really struggling. And we want students to know that no matter what the politics of their teacher, every teacher is someone that they can trust. Every teacher is somebody they can go to if they're feeling bullied or harassed. And from the perspective of Jewish teachers, right, they want to know their union is going to have their back. And this is so very problematic for, uh, for Jewish students, Jewish families, and for Jewish teachers. And so in our capacity, as a consensus public affairs voice, for uh, our community, our Jewish community here, we're working directly with parents and we're working directly with teachers. Uh, Ethan, when we spoke, obviously there's a content issue that I have about this resolution. But one of the reasons that I also wanted to discuss this and have Jeff a part of the conversation, Jeff was a member of the Crystal City Council. And one of the conversations that he and I had very early on when he was in elected service was he, was, he brought up his perspective, which I agreed with, that it was inappropriate for government bodies, local units of government to issue these kind of resolutions and weigh into these affairs. And so when I saw this resolution, aside from the content, where it came from also raised some concerns. So I want to give Jeff an opportunity to comment on that and, and offer his perspective. So one of the things that that we did when I was elected to the Crystal City Council is we passed a, a series of 
we, we passed a set of rules uh, for conduct on the council. And one of the things that we did that was a little bit controversial uh, at the time was we banned all resolutions related to things that didn't uh, didn't have a very specific tie to the city of Crystal. And that was in response to kind of what we've seen over the last several years, this growing notion that people who are elected at the municipal level uh, consider themselves to be some somewhat kind of super activists, right? They, they're, they're activists with an election certificate, and they, they feel that now that I have a platform, I'm going to use that platform to push everything about anything that has anything that, that has nothing to do with my my position, but I just want to talk about it. And that was my initial reaction when I saw this was th this resolution from the teachers was very much like what Ethan said. There was nobody waiting for this. Nobody was no, nobody was pounding down the door really wanting to know what the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers thought about this conflict. And in fact, the, quite the opposite was true in that there really was no upside for them to issue something. So you know, we went so far as to enshrine that in our rules and say, we're not going to do these symbolic resolutions about things that are happening far away. If you want to talk about something that's happening in the city of Crystal, feel free. Um, you know, the, the, it's, people have noted the, the statement from the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers did not mention students uh, in it at all. So there was nothing, this had nothing to do with students. They, they didn't even go ahead and mention educators. Um, this was this was basically kind of a, a far left wing sort of cut and paste um, statement that really had no business being issued at all. Um, my question for Ethan around this is, you know, um, the the reporting that I saw about the statement itself was fairly cagey about how this came to be and how this happened. Ethan, do you have any insight into, you know. Um, I think the statement I saw was, you know, a majority of the people present at the meeting approved this and thought that it was a good idea or, or something like that. Do you do you have any feeling from the feedback you're getting? How I guess I'm trying to get to how big of a problem do we have within the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers? Is this a widespread problem or is this a situation where a couple of, you know, really loud weirdos spoke on behalf of everybody else and then this and it and it's become a, a problem for everybody so it's a great question so the first thing that um listeners need to understand is that there was no notice that this was going to come up at the regular monthly union meeting and so look my wife's a a teacher not in the minneapolis schools and i don't think she really ever goes to union meetings unless they're getting like an important update on like contract negotiations. Most teachers work way too many hours to attend every monthly meeting, especially when there's no particular reason to attend a meeting. So uh, taking advantage, of, I think, of the fact that their rules allow um, for a resolution to come from the floor without being on the agenda and voted on at that meeting, um, they were able to, to pass this and it was like overwhelming support because nobody spoke out in an opposition to it. And we know that if this had been on the agenda and there had been an opportunity for people to speak against it, it the vote would have not necessarily gone the way it did because one of the people that we're working with right now is someone who voted for the resolution. He didn't know. He didn't understand, right? It was brought up. It was quickly dispensed with. It sounded good. I mean, on the surface, who isn't for a ceasefire, right? I mean, we should get into 
what the consequences of a ceasefire are without the return of the hostages. But it sounds good. And if you're like a math teacher, like you're not an expert in the Middle East, why not? So the first, I think, so I, I do think that there is a, a significant issue with the leadership who is speaking, you know, who is who allowed this to happen, whose rules allow this to happen. But in a union of, I think, of about 3,000 members, maybe 80 voted on it. So it's going to be very interesting what happens on Wednesday, because on Wednesday is their next monthly meeting. And we're working with Jewish and non-Jewish teachers um, who are bringing forward a resolution, which they're sharing with everyone. So everyone knows this is going to be on the agenda. And they even know what the language looks like. Right. So they don't have to do that, but they're modeling what it's like to have fair process. Um, my under, my expectation or understanding is that the union is probably going to need to revisit these rules to allow for a better process. Um, but, you know, those are the rules we have. But I think there's a reason why the interim president is being cagey because the so process think, so is think, embarrassing. It's an embarrassing yeah, right. process. And, and every, every organization of any type that needs to look Nobody ever wants to talk about the rules. It's boring. People think you're a crazy person when you talk about the rules. I've been to enough right. political conventions where somebody stands up and they're like, oh, rule 3.2.7 says blah, blah, blah. Um, but they're important because specifically for this reason that you can't, when you are an organization like that, to allow, you know, uh, agenda items that are that don't have any um, that don't have any notice or things to be voted on from the floor with a small majority or with a, again three thousand members and eighty people pass this particular resolution it just makes the organizations look bad and good governance is something um, is something that that I, I think you know every organization needs to look at it's one of those things that again like you don't nobody wants to be the Roberts Rules guy but um, somebody has to and. You know, somebody has to be the one to say, "No, guys, we actually have to. We actually have to do this in a in a way that 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 makes sense." I hope to see um, a large uh, pushback from this. I, I'm not holding my breath. I, generally, I think apathy wins out um, over over anything else, and I it, I it will be interesting to see what does happen. You know, going well, the forward. teachers that we're working with have. Um... You know, it's it actually this centers students um, and it centers families and it centers educators. Uh, and the, the key piece of it, it's like four paragraphs is um, and I hear I think they're being gracious to teachers because they start with, while it was not MFT members intent, the Israel-Palestine resolution passed at our October 25 meeting harmed many Jewish members, students and families while causing unnecessary division within our union. We regret this. Every single part of that, except for perhaps the part about not being their intent, it's hard to know what their intent was, is unassailably true, right? It has harmed many Jewish members, students, and families. It has caused division, which I think people would generally think is unnecessary, right, within the union. And if you agree with that, then you should regret it. Uh, I'm not a progressive. I, I consider myself to be left of center, but I have learned to speak progressive. And my understanding is that, you know, for progressives, you don't get to challenge someone else's perceived narrative, their their truth, right? So it would be interesting to say to a Jewish fellow member, you haven't been harmed. When someone says, I feel harmed, right? And clearly many family members and students have said, we feel harmed. There is not unanimity. Um, and this is why it was important, I think, to say that JCRC is a consensus public affairs voice. Jewish community, like any community, but maybe especially so, we don't have unanimity on many issues. We certainly don't have unanimity on 
Israel or Zionism. Um, but we are speaking here for the 80% plus perspective. Um, and so it is, again, unassailably true that many members were harmed. Many students and families were harmed. And this is, I think, a very gracious resolution from these members. So they're not trying to overly embarrass their leadership and enable them to honestly issue the apology that they should have done already. This will be voted on. Go ahead, Mike. I think, unfortunately, Ethan, what you're seeing has been something that's been building up for quite a while. Resolutions are getting put in front of city councils and kind of what Jeff said, but in Minneapolis and St. Paul, people are taking advantage of progressive majorities on these councils and whether it's related to energy, climate change, things like this that are done with small numbers of an organization pushing something through. There's been a number of situations we've had to deal with in the past where they suspend the rules at a city council meeting to pass a resolution, which then creates this idea that a city or a union or a larger organization supports these ideas. And the problem is, I think this has been going on for quite a while in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Unfortunately, it rose to a level here with this issue, where the intensity of this issue is far beyond whether an oil pipeline should be built. This is something at a higher level. But this has been happening for a while. And I think what you're doing by having being the voice for the 80% of the people who don't support this, that really matters because the challenge is to find the voice for those who are saying, I'm not okay with this. And can you find enough of them and activate them? Because it ends up being a small number of people. And the hard part is you're you're playing defense when you don't even know the game is on sometimes. And all of a sudden the resolution pops out. It's It's been whackable, you know, uh, since since October 7th. Every day brings, brings something new. Um, you know, I, when I say 80%, I mean, I'm definitely referring to 80% in the Jewish community. I mean, depending on how the question is asked and when the question is asked, the, the numbers may be different. But let's also, let's get into the content, if we can, about this resolution. Yes. Because it's not just that it's inappropriate that they're weighing in. I mean, again, if you wanted to issue some sort of resolution, it would be like, we support our students, particularly our Jewish, Muslim, Israeli, and Palestinian students, because we know that they're really hurting right now. That would be appropriate. Um, we're against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and the other isms. That Correct. would be appropriate, right? But, you know... This idea, I mean, let's just take the last sentence first. Uh, the BDS movement is a peaceful and powerful way to affect lasting <laughs> positive change in region. Let's be clear here. The boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement has the exact same goal as Hamas. Different means, same goal. And uh, we're, uh, my boss and I were just talking about the fact that on Wednesday, it's going to be exactly like 76 years since the uh, rejection of the two-state solution 1.0, or depending if you want to count the Peel partition, there are other partitions, but the UN resolution to partition the British mandate in Palestine, which of course the Arabs rejected. For 76 years plus, they have been basically bashing their head against a wall. And the reason they've been bashing their head against the wall and thinking that through terrorism, violence, economic boycotts, they can essentially destroy, remove Israel is because the premise of the BDS movement and the premise of Hamas is that Israel is like this settler colonial foreign entity which has invaded the, the, the Muslim Middle East. And if they put enough pressure, enough terrorism, Israel will go away, right? Israelis will go home. And it's a failure to understand Israelis as they, as they understand themselves or Jews as we understand ourselves that they are home. Israelis are home. That is their home. That is where Judaism, the word Jew literally comes from Judea. Our religion, our language, our holidays. I mean, Hanukkah, which everyone wants to celebrate, right? In like, like less than two weeks, it's literally a celebration of the restoration of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. 
So because they delude themselves into thinking who we are, they engage in tactics that don't work and get them nowhere. And this is what I, when I was uh, emailing you, you guys in, in, in advance of this, the necessity of breaking the wheel, right? Stop doing the same thing over and over again. Hamas attacks Israel. Israel defends itself. Palestinians die. Wash and repeat, wash and repeat, wash and repeat. Somebody needs to tell, I mean, Hamas, they're very obviously impossible to talk to because they're, they're psychopathic Nazi killers. But the BDS movement and their, you know, their allies, your tactics are counterproductive. Forget, you don't care about Israelis, fine. If you purport to care about Palestinians, you're not helping them. All you're doing is pushing Israel in further, for, like it just makes it much harder for them to have any trust that there could be any peace. So that's the, that is a huge problem with this. Um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Jeff doesn't mention students or educators any any other place. They only condemn the U.S. government. They can't condemn right. Hamas. And and finally, I mean, there's much more we could talk about, but less, anyone who is demanding a ceasefire that is not demanding a release of the hostages, that is morally bankrupt. Correct. Again, nobody's paying attention in Gaza City and Jerusalem what they're saying anyway. So why not throw in, right, and release all the hostages? It's a great question, right? Nobody's given us an answer. No, I would agree. And, and I would say to you the reason why I wanted to spend a couple minutes discussing the process of how this resolution came about. It shows tremendous disrespect to the issue in the process that was laid out. And then when you get to actually what the resolution is, it's just horrific. It's just horrific. Your letter, you, you sent a letter last week to the leadership signed by parents, students, staff, alumni, taxpayers, taxpayers right? everyone, yes. And you noted that the letter, that the resolution also refused to condemn the brutal the, the attack by Hamas, um, that it, it failed to demand the release of the hostages, which you noted. It endorsed the, the BDS movement, it demonizes Jews by placing sole blame for the conflict on Israel and uses highly inaccurate language to denigrate Israel uh, and ignores the fact that Israel is central to the identity to the vast majority of Jews. Talk about some of those other areas of this resolution that were so insensitive. So the premise that we need to have a ceasefire now, while ignoring that we had a ceasefire on October 6th before Hamas crossed an international border, um, look, the, the status of the, of the West Bank, do you want to call it Palestine, you want to call it Judea and Samaria, you want to call it the occupied territory, it's a different, that is a whole other conversation. The communities in southern Israel along the Gaza border are all within the 1940, like 48, 49 armistice lines, right? This is Israel. This is recognized by everyone as Israel. And so crossing an international border, when there was a ceasefire in place, very intentionally engaging in the most horrific, barbaric acts of sadism, murdering children in front of their parents, parents in front of their children, burning children alive, rape as a weapon, right? That is completely unacknowledged in this, right? They're, they're holding on the same moral plane, um, Israel, which is defending itself, and the violence of Hamas. This would be like holding the SS or the Eisengruppen, right, or Dr. Mengele in World War II on the same moral plane as the United States Army Air Force, right? That's Ethan, exactly what they're doing. Can I ask, because you, you just, you rattled off a number of just unimaginable atrocities, right? 
which which I think again a lot of times people think about this stuff in the abstract and they don't actually think about what what really happened those words that you just said murdering children murdering parents in front of their children rape as a weapon right those are things that you that you said do you believe that do you believe the people making these ridiculous statements and issuing these proclamations and all of that do you believe do they not think that happened do they think it's justified do they just not think about it i mean what what is that because i i struggle to get in the mindset of someone who can look at people who take hostages and think oh that's the good guys right i, I just i i can't get past that that mental block right I, I i just go okay so if you're taking hostages then if you're taking children and elderly people hostage then you're the bad guy that's pretty clear right and to me there's a lot of moral clarity do you have any insight into why, what is that? Why, why do people? I think it exists on a spectrum. I think there are people who are going to deny it. Um, if you look at the University of Minnesota and you look at the like the most radical department that's on campus, which is the gender women's studies department, embedded in their resolution or resolution or statement was that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but to accuse Muslims of engaging in, I believe they use the word acts of barbarism, is Islamophobic. So in other words, a department, yes, you're looking at me like the viewers can't see this because we're just listening. They're not listeners, not viewers. Michael's looking at me like, what? I'm like, exactly, right? So the, the level of gaslighting, and, and this extends itself to the fact that there's been a lot of discussion in Israeli Jewish circles about the fact that the United Nations has multiple bodies designated for the welfare of the rights of women, all been silent, right? You know, largely the Me Too movement has been silent. And so there's this tremendous sense of betrayal, right, and, and of gaslighting. And, you know, remember there was like, but where's the evidence? It's like, you know, remember they're like, where's the evidence that babies' heads were cut off or babies were burned, right? They are still literally identifying bodies right now because they, I mean, they were charred, right? They were they were mutilated and they were burned. And, um, I mean, they identified one person, they know that she's dead just because they found a, fraction of, a fragment of her skull, right? This beautiful woman who was, I mean, like at least like 300 of the victims were at like a, 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 a dance party right in the desert who were who were like the other thing that the people like these progressives they can't wrap their mind around is that so many of the israeli victims were progressives right they were feminists they were people who were utopian like peaceniks who who that's a hebrew word peacenik right who wanted to <laughs> literally it's the word who wanted to live on the border with gaza so that they could help the people of gaza by like ferrying them to doctor's appointments so they can employ them which was weaponized against these communities because some of the people they employed clearly had mapped out these farming communities so they knew exactly where to go. And so, yes, some people deny it, and then other people try to excuse it, right? Well, what do you expect? They're living under occupation. Okay, again, Gaza is not under occupation. Israel withdrew all of its forces, all of its settlers in 2005. Well, I don't know. I guess expect that you don't rape women. I guess we expect that you don't burn children in front of their parents and parents in front of their children. guess we expect, I mean, they murdered parents and then they kidnapped the traumatized three four-year-olds why would you even want to have a three to four-year-old to take care of whose parents you just murdered we've been you know it's been very obviously heartwarming to see the release of at this point it looks like in today it's going to move forward it's been 30 plus um no we're closer to 50 at this point um uh, about 40 um, Israeli hostages, uh, mainly children and, and, and women, 
Um, but understand that every one of these people who is who is being returned has family members that were killed probably in front of them, right? Or have family members who are still being held hostage. Uh, and so the barbarism is the point, right? That was the idea is to terrorize Israelis. Again, if it's this anti-colonial playbook, right? Which is what, you know, was done in, say, Algeria or what was done in Vietnam. This is actually smart in a very evil sort of way, right? You make life so atrocious for that colonial power that they go back to the mother country. Except for it's not a colony, right? And so it, it, it actually I was listening to the podcast this morning, Times Israel. There's a, there's a strong belief that the communities, these farming communities, not only are people going to return, people are going to want to move to those communities. The population is going to actually grow. So you asked a question, do they not see it? Some of them refuse to see it, right? Some of them just try to contextualize it. Some of them try to excuse it. But it's moral cowardice not to call it out, right? If you want my attention on a ceasefire, the least you can do is call for all hostages to be returned and condemn Hamas. If you cannot do those two things, there's no point in even having a conversation. I think, Ethan, one of the things that where this speaks to it, even at a higher level, there isn't the ability where... Don't let facts get in the way. You build causes around emotion and you basically reshape the argument. And it happens a lot. And you unfortunately have a number of people who either want to believe what they the misinformation or don't take the time on their own to find out what the real facts are, which then allows them to have the emotional certainty of what they're doing. And things become a scrum rather than a conversation because they're all involved in this in one position or one point of view. And they're not going to pay attention to facts that disagree with the perception that they have. And so now you're trying to convince people that what they feel is wrong as opposed to what they know is wrong. And that's the, that's the challenge, which is what we need to start think, thinking about how to start countering that, because that is the challenge. Trying to say to somebody who's emotionally invested in an outcome that their outcome is wrong, because in here are the facts, becomes a challenge because in their position, they've locked in from a cause-related point of view that this is what they believe. And I would bet that within the teachers union, there's probably a small number of people who are you know, hard enough edged on this to say, we're going to push this thing through because we're so committed passionately to this position. And if these other facts become things that counter their argument, they're not going to pay attention to them or they're going to ignore them because that cuts in the way of the emotional like intensity of what they're believing in. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, great point i feel uh, um and the I, I just sorry i need to reflect on what you said for a second because it is such a great point because i think a lot of times people think and we see this on a, on a number of issues right crime inflation um that if you just fact people you just throw facts at them that they will change their mind because you've shown them that 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 you're correct, and that's just that's not how people work. That that doesn't right. that doesn't no. happen. And so I don't know. I, I don't. We could go probably talk for hours about that and and what and what the right counter arguments are. I wanted to point. I wanted to mention one thing just because it popped into my head as we were talking here. The number that you know we've we've had a lot of conversation about misinformation the last several years, and and um. So when we're talking about people building their their position on something based on emotion, when they're sold a story that's absolutely false, and then they come to their conclusion on what on what happened based on incorrect information, the one that's been going around, and you've seen it on so if you're on social media at all, is this woman uh, who was released. She was a prisoner who was released uh, from prison in Israel with the with the deformed face, right? Right. And the stories that are being told about 
her and what the Israeli government did to her and what and 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 then when you dig in and you find out she her face is deformed because she was a suicide bomber and her bomb went off before she intended it to and not only so she disfigured herself and then not only that but then the Israeli government has paid for two reconstructive surgeries for her face but refused the third one and they're supposed to be the bad guys so i think you know when you get these things that take kind of legend status and facts are facts are irrelevant and and you know this all dovetails into the role of tiktok and social media and all of this and how and how maybe foreign powers are um manipulating things and then i start sounding like a tinfoil hat person but i believe this is all real um you know but that it, works it's, though because people are able to be manipulated because they've either disconnected themselves from the real the, the real facts i mean that you can social media works to move a position on an opinion in part because people aren't connected to the facts that used to anchor them to what was the, the reality and we're now at a point now where persuasion i think has become a lost art in this kind of propaganda battle and you know and and in this case you know hamas and others and the progressives are much quicker to activate on this they're quicker to get on the ground with a easy to digest narrative where you're left with a factual counter to an emotional point and facts versus emotion are really, really hard. In this case, what Ethan and your organization are dealing with, you're dealing with families and, and teachers and parents who feel uncomfortable by this. But you, it, the hard part is I don't. I think the other team didn't really care whether people felt uncomfortable or not. They were going to go ahead with this. And if people felt uncomfortable, so be it. They got a moral merit badge. Well, I, my sense is that they – they don't really understand the mainstream Jewish community. I think that what happens mm -hmm. is that in these progressive circles, you'll always find overrepresented um, the 10, 20% of the community that agrees, right? And so this tokenization, like, well, I talked to so-and-so, you know, who's Jewish, right? And so-and-so, you know, is, is a rabbi in one particular case, right? Uh, the person who interrupted the President Biden's uh, fundraiser. And yes, of course, we're not, you know, a complete monolith, right? There is diversity of thought, but the question becomes, again, you know, for progressives, in what other context would you amplify the voice of any marginalized community of a viewpoint within that community, which is 10 to 20% over the other 80, 90%, right? right? Never. They would never do that, right? And so what is it about the Jewish community? And this is really at the heart of kind of, of the work at the JCRC, which is explaining Jewish identity and anti-Semitism and how these two things kind of connect to each other and how anti-Semitism operates in some ways like other isms, but in other ways is very different. And progressives are their um their worldview is who's ever less powerful is by virtue of being less powerful more right. And if you look at the conflict between point. if you look at yep. the conflict between Israel and Palestinians or Israel and Hamas, Israel obviously has a much larger standing army. If you would to open your aperture and you would look at the entire Middle East, and particularly if you would bring Iran into the equation, right? Or Hezbollah into the equation, it, it looks quite different. But also, if you consider what is the power of an enemy that is so ruthless that they are perfectly content to kill your civilians and then dare you to kill their civilians as they hide behind them, right? There's an asymmetry of power there that, you know, no nation has figured out, right? And so they, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of explanation, a lot of conversation, a lot of trust to kind of get people to kind of think about this in a different way and to understand that especially from a, the arc of Jewish history, we never really feel that secure, right? Um, 
And by the way, if you're trying to argue that Israel doesn't shouldn't exist and that Jews don't need Israel, being really anti-Semitic in the diaspora in places like Minneapolis public schools is not a great way to convince us. Right. Okay. You're just proving the point of why Israel needs to exist. One of those topics that we wanted to discuss was media coverage of the Israeli Hamas war, how it's been perceived by everyone in, the, in this discussion today. Ethan, I'd like to start with you to give your take on how you think the media coverage, both locally, nationally, and internationally, has covered the war, the atrocities from your perspective? Well, let's start with the positive. Um, locally, I think that um, much of the, of the coverage has been really pretty good. Um, on multiple occasions, uh, especially at some of the local TV stations, Star Tribune, have reached out to us. They said, hey, can you comment on this thing that's happening? Or, you know, what's your perspective? Or, hey, what stories, you know, are, do you think we're missing? I think they're really trying at the local level to, to, to be balanced, to be sensitive. Um, and, you know, while I, I wouldn't say that every local outlet is equally great, um, I think overall the picture here in Minnesota is, is, is really pretty good. When we go internationally or nationally is where um, the coverage is, is literally getting people killed to some extent. So let's take the infamous um, uh, attack, bombing, right? Israel bombed the hospital, right? Which the New York Times, the Washington Post, the BBC just took on face value, right? That Israel did it because Hamas said so, right? Gazan sources, Hamas claims, as though the people who had just, you know, and this was like a week after the atrocities of October 7th, you know, like they're like trustworthy and believable as though they weren't aware, which they obviously were, that there's a proven track record of Hamas Islamic Jihad rockets failing to cross the border, landing and killing Palestinian civilians. And that sidetracked the president's trip. He was supposed to, remember, go to all these Arab countries he couldn't, yeah. right? People, I mean, there was concern about evacuating the U.S. embassy in Beirut, right? It was really serious. And, you know, you know Al Jazeera, which is basically Qatari state media and Pravda, whatever, I'm sorry, whatever, the Russian, Russia Today, right? You know, you know they're going to be terrible. The Chinese are going to be terrible. But to have, like, you know, these pillars of supposedly objective professional journalism just falling for this hook, line, and sinker. And this is a challenge, right? Because a lie, you know, as Mark Twain quipped, right, can get, you know, halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. Israel needed like a couple hours to come up with all of the evidence that, you know, was needed to convince the U.S. government and to convince, honestly, much of the media that, that they had gotten the story completely wrong. But interestingly, I was just reading today that the BBC reporter has no regrets, right? And they're like, well, yes, you I were saw wrong. And, but the best part, too, was like, they're like, and you even claimed that the hospital was flattened and it landed in a parking lot. He's like, well, okay, that was wrong. But, you know, from the information I had, what, what was the information you had? You weren't there, right? And so this, of course, though, it, it, the reason why they believe this is because they're primed to believe the worst of Israel and to be completely incredulous when it comes to the claims for people who you know had just, like, engaged in the worst atrocities since the Holocaust. So there's that level of bias, and that's obviously the, the worst form of bias. But then there's also recency bias, right, which we see in all sorts of contexts. Like, whatever happened today is by far the only thing we need to care about. Forget what happened, ooh, five weeks ago. And there's also the kind of 
if it bleeds, it leads bias, right? Disaster yeah. bias. And so really sorry that, you know, more Israelis aren't dying, right, since October 7th, and that the IDF is actually taking measures to protect its troops, maybe then the world would be more sympathetic. Um, it's not a calculus. I mean, Israelis would much prefer, if they had to choose, between being pitied because they're being killed and being despised because they're fighting back, better to live and be despised than to be dead in pity. Um, but here we actually have hostages, right? Who, you know, if you look at it again, to bring the conversation full circle back to the MFT, they can't even mention them. Now, interestingly, over the weekend, because of the release of hostages, you know, which is a very, very painful deal for Israel, because militarily, they absolutely have Hamas on the ropes. And Hamas clearly did not agree to this out of the good graciousness. And it's not to get their people released either. Oh, well, that has symbolic value. They're literally getting creamed in, in Gaza, and they needed this time to to regroup and to resupply um, and to figure out what on earth they're going to do next. Um, but Israel did this because Israel values the lives of its, of its civilians above all else. Uh, so with this coverage, you sort of see that, okay, there's now a little bit more positive media coverage you know, for the weekend. But again, this is a story of Israeli victims. So, it, it, I mean, in order to be covered well in the media, I suppose Israel just needs to be a better job of being a victim. But why would you want to be a victim? Why would you want your civilians to die? Hamas, by contrast, has figured out that they're winning, quote unquote, when they're the victims, when they purposely allow their civilians to die. Billions of dollars for tunnels for them, nothing for the civilians you know, embedding themselves in civilian infrastructure and launching rockets from that infrastructure, starting a war, they have no chance of winning and the media fall for it. Right. And so, again, this is what I mean by breaking the wheel. What if people said, yes, all of this devastation in Gaza is terrible and it's absolutely Hamas's fault. And we need to do everything we can to put pressure on Hamas, which means putting pressure on their allies like Qatar. And, you know, not to be too political, but which members of Congress have a very special relationship with Qatar and have been really silent on Qatar? Correct. Correct. Well, one thing, Ethan, I can tell you this from A, having worked in newsrooms, but I have a, a very good friend of mine who is a consultant, works with TV stations around the country. And the newsrooms are filled with younger people now who have come through a higher ed system that has demonized Israel. And they, they come with preloaded biases. And they're, the audience of people who Hamas is reaching may not be the general public, but it's people who work in newsrooms and people who are, you know, even within the White House itself are having, you know, there's conflicts within there. But looking at how newsrooms operate, I think the younger audiences of people who are the producers making these decisions have a preconceived idea of what the story is. The thing that really frustrates me, and I'd share this with Michael before, when the attack happened at the hospital, the media clearly got it wrong. And it, but it, it was... T they went to great lengths to not say specifically they got the story wrong because, you know, one of the things that decreases credibility in the media is they have an incredibly hard time to admit we made a mistake. We got a story wrong, which then basically allows the people on the far, the farther extreme say, see, you can't trust the media here. I think you're seeing the same situation where these newsrooms are kind of you know tripping over themselves to try and figure out how to cover this. And the higher you go nationally, I think it's a bigger challenge. It's interesting in the Twin Cities right now to see how they're struggling to try and find some balance here to cover this. But even then, they, you know, they struggle with this, too, because I guarantee you the people in the newsroom, especially some of the younger producers and others, have a perspective that's more of an advocate rather than a fact finder. And these stories, one side of the story has more emotional purchase 
then the facts, it gets back to the other part of the conversation. So I think the fact that what you guys are doing as an organization is really important because if you're not there with real people and real voices to try and call this stuff out or challenge it, it's going to get embedded even farther than it already is. And as for the, you know, the, the national media coverage, international media coverage, I mean, they were at New York Times and Associated Press hired stringers who were on motorcycles riding on the attacks on October 7th and claimed that they didn't know these people, that the material they got from these stringers came from people who almost had to have known in advance that the attacks were coming. They went through a, a grinding out process to figure out what the, should they do to hire freelancers to the point where the New York Times fired one of them. But in and of themselves, they had to admit they made a mistake. But it's really, really hard for a media enter enterprise to say, you know what, we got it wrong. Because it's almost like a, it's a they can't get past that wall or that position. And unfortunately, it takes a lot of outside groups pushing to say, by the way, you did get it wrong. And it's, it's, it's frustrating. The media in the case of Gaza and Hamas really owes their their viewers or listeners the, the necessary context to understand that any civilian in Gaza is far more afraid of Hamas than they are of Israel. And so if a doctor is saying, like an Al-Shifa hospital, there is no terror, there's no Hamas activity here. Well, what is he going to say? Right. If he says the truth, he's dead. Right. Or his family's dead. You know, I mean, that's just how it works. And if you're working, you know, with a stringer, right, if they don't tow the Hamas line, they're also dead. And so what the media owe their their viewers and listeners to say, look, the sources that we're dealing with may be all under duress, right? The sources that we're dealing with are living or working, including, you know, international aid organizations, right, that Hamas runs the show here. They're not... They're not just terrorists. They're a terrorist government, right? And so it's, it is kind of incredible that um, the other thing, too, of, of course, also about, about that hospital was that the exact number, they knew exactly how many people had been killed, 500. Insta right? Instantaneously. How on earth did they know that? Israel still didn't. I mean, Israel, I mean, to their credit, you know a country is an actual responsible democracy when they actually lower a number because that's what the facts indicate. So for the longest time, Israel believed it was 1,400 dead people on October 7th. And then they realized it was actually closer to 1,200. Because that's where the facts are. It was not easy for them to identify the bodies, which we've discussed earlier. But, you know, it's like, why not just say 5,000 people were killed? Why not 500,000 people were killed? I mean, someone out there is going to buy it, right? I mean, it, it is absolutely um, pathetic. And so... You know, it, it is such a struggle. And it's like even terminology, like, you know, the BBC and others. I just heard this today on the current, on those driving into work, militants. I am sorry. Why is it so difficult to call them terrorists? If the, what we talked about earlier, you know, is not terrorism, then the word terrorism is devoid of all meaning. We've talked many, many times about, about media bias and the way that media bias presents itself. And I think the there are some really, really obvious ways that bias presents itself in terms of, you know, that anyone could see, but it's the, it's the smaller everyday, um, it's the death by a thousand paper cuts piece that, that people don't always see. And that's one of it. And word choice is a, is a way that, that, um, that, that happens where, where you, where you, you see that and, and people may not necessarily catch that, but it's absolutely shaping the narrative and it's doing it from a biased standpoint. You know, one of the things that one of my, um, one of my, uh, I don't know, pet peeves, it's not a pet peeve, it's a pet cause, I guess, talking about basically the democratization of media and um, 
you know, uh, Michael and I are very big about kind of uh, whatever you want to call it, the new media, the alternative media, the, the um, alternatives to the traditional large news organizations who have, have definitely declined in, in recent years. And I, I love a lot about the democratization of media and how it allows individuals to get stories out. And we're all, we're in some sense, we're all the media and, but the flip side of that comes to it becomes very hard to know who to trust and who is actually, you know, who's a reliable person. Ethan, do you have any, um, do you, do you have any, is there a list or is there some kind of, if we're looking for accurate information, um, on this topic, is there, is there something that you would point to that is a good source? from the, on the media side of things or, or somebody that, that does a better job anyway, if we're grading uh, on a curve? I think the Times of Israel does a fantastic job and there's no paywall. Um, it is a, it is a nonprofit, but it, um, they, and so they'll, they'll gladly take, you know, a little bit of money from people, but you don't have to pay. Um, I, I know the, the founding editor, I know, uh, some of the analysts, um, and some of the, some of their staff, I think they do a really, they're very professional um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that the far left will awful say, this is Bibi's war, right? As though like, you know, 90 plus percent of Israelis aren't like absolutely seeing this exactly the same way that like the hostages must be returned. Hamas is, is they cannot live next to Hamas. Well, Times of Israel, has, you know, their founding editor and others have been very vocal critics of, of Bibi Netanyahu um, up till October 7th. In the wake of October seventh, and is you know seen as this profound failure. So this is not you know the mouthpiece of, of, of Bibi's government, but it gives you a, a pretty good sense of centrist um, perspective. I think Jeff Goldberg at the Atlantic does a great job in terms of like the pieces that he's pulling together. Um, I think I sent you guys earlier a piece from Tablet um, from from Marty Freeman. I mean, look, every paper will have individuals. I think, for example, David French who is a really interesting conservative um, with, a, with a very solid JAG background, that his analysis about the laws of war, which are not what people think they are, right, in terms of proportionality, um, were really helpful. Um, I, I did cancel my Washington Post subscription. I just couldn't deal with um, their, their absurd bias anymore, and a lot of people are pointing this out. But, you know, they have some good columnists there as well. You know, it's interesting, we were talking earlier about the that Palestinian would be suicide bomber right with the, the scar face there was literally images not just from social media but like you know i don't i don't want to name who it was because i can't remember it was definitely very mainstream media where it was like a split screen it was like a child an israeli child and her and this is right. this is to bring it back to the language of mft right we condemn violence like like we're all the same like a child right attending what a friend's birthday party or you know whatever they were doing in their home and somebody who tried to kill children they're they're not the same um and when you use the same language for them or you, you you put them on the same the same plane we're all dumber for it correct and not all sides are equal no there is not a balance between right and wrong on both sides and this engagement in both sidesism has been just incredibly ugly to see mike the only other thing to me that's really sophisticated related to this is the propaganda battle related to hearts and minds. I mean, 
Hamas's skillet on the propaganda side because it's they can make an emotionally based charge. But what what Israel has done and by getting the videos that Hamas recorded and sharing that with members of Congress and other people around the country here is really important. It's another way to kind of not fight back, but push back to at least establish that what happened actually did happen. And it's, you know, but the propaganda battle is what drives a lot of the media coverage. And your point about Hamas controlling things for that article you sent around is really important for people to see. It reminds me a little bit of Baghdad Bob from the days of the, you know, the Gulf War, where he was Saddam's spokesperson, no matter what was going on, the answer was always positive and pay no attention to the facts around here. And I think we're at a different level of sophistication that social media makes it harder to deal with, but it also forces everybody to have their own filter now. I think before you could count on the media being a filter for things, now you have to do it yourself. How would we have ever won World War II if we had the social media that we have today and the sensibilities that we have today? Like, how soon would people have been saying, ceasefire now with Hitler, right? Or, you know, you know, outrage for the people of Dresden, right? Or the people of Berlin. Um, you, I'm sorry, I wish there was a way to, to defeat evil without innocent people being hurt. That's not how it works in the real world, especially for an enemy like Hamas. Um, it is always in Israel's best interest to minimize the the, the death of innocent Palestinian civilians. It, it, it demonstrably does not work well for Israel when Palestinian civilians die. But if the consequence of that is that Hamas just gets to continue ruling Gaza, and you and if they've already said, what happened October 7th, we're going to do again and again and again. Um, no country, no country would tolerate that. Um, and how on earth can there be a ceasefire now when there's still about 200 hostages, right? And they are still, they're literally, they're so cruel. They're so barbaric. They're, they, they separated one of these young girls from her mother just two days ago. You know, the, the whole agreement was that they were not supposed to do that. But of course, you know, an agreement with Hamas is worth, as we saw on October 7th, less than nothing. To your statement about World War II, Jeff and I have had that exact same conversation. I've discussed it multiple times in my house with my family, just out of outrage as to how I've seen some of the media coverage. It's been hearing you speak about this, what you're living and what you're experiencing, Ethan, is just, it's just unimaginable. And what we've, the images that people have seen on TV, what I've seen on TV, what family members have seen on TV, what you've seen on TV, I just can't imagine going through this experience. And it has created, I think, a real need for a larger discussion after this, after the hostages are back, where there is a larger ongoing conversation about the rise of anti-Semitism and how Jews and Israel are viewed by, I think, a number of institutions in this country and people. It is horrific what I've seen, and I can't imagine it from your perspective. It's, it's been terrible. And at the same time, I am so impressed with the resiliency of the Minnesota Jewish community. I'm so impressed with the resiliency of the American community, uh, the diaspora community, and of course, Israelis. Um, you know, I'm seeing so many people who don't hold like formal, like they don't have a job like I do, right? They're not the deputy executive director of the JCRC who are stepping up, right? Who are organizing their friends and neighbors. Um, there's been now two weekends in a row, um, uh, a march with strollers. Uh, around the, the lakes in Minneapolis, with the the um, I'm going to show it to you, but it's radio, so it doesn't it's audio. It doesn't make any difference. No. With the posters of the um, of the kidnapped uh, Israelis in these empty strollers, particularly children, we didn't organize that. Like 
we're we're helping them but like they're there that's incredible um and you know you saw this this largest like peaceful protest movement in israel the brothers and sisters in arms who were opposing judicial overhaul overnight basically become civil society overnight the largest distribution of of goods because there are two hundred thousand plus israelis who have been displaced internally live in israel and they need literally everything and Israelis and also a ton of money has been raised in diaspora here in the Twin Cities. Like it's like thirteen million dollars for for humanitarian relief. And so yes, this is in many ways the worst of times. Um, but I'm I'm very proud to be Jewish. I'm very proud of our community. I, I love being Jewish and I want, you know, I want my kids and I, they do as well to love being Jewish. Um and you know, we often kind of end conversations or or kind of our statements with uh, three Hebrew words. Am Yisrael Chai, the people of Israel. That doesn't mean Israelis. That means all Jews live. We live, and and we and we will continue to live, um, not despite of, but because because not despite of our enemies, but because we love being Jewish and we love life. These were not topics when Becky and I started the podcast that we expected to delve into, and we've uh, done three shows on this, and every one of them is very difficult. And it's very difficult to hear what you're experiencing and to have these type of conversations. They're important. We need to have them. I think it would be disrespectful if we did not have these conversations and provide a platform for you, your organization, and anyone who supports your cause to speak up because that's where we can be helpful and be partners. I have been so impressed my church, others in my community, that the circles that my family and I travel in have been incredibly supportive and want to be supportive to the cause. But there is an element of ugliness. And what some of the topics that you just touched on and some of the descriptions are just really difficult to hear. And it's really important that I think people understand the brutality of what's gone on and also know that there needs to be support for you, your organization. Jewish people all across this state, this nation's been for the state of Israel. How yeah. are you doing through this? And also on a note, what's going to happen on Wednesday? And in particular, what more can people do? Um, well, people can contact their members of Congress, right? They need to hear from people. They're hearing from the angry minority. They need to hear from the sensible majority. So absolutely. Um, this is, you know, contact your Republican members, your Democratic members, like you know, our senators, right, whoever your representative is. And um, and just basically express support that, you know, it could just simply be, you know, I stand with Israel and the United States must continue to have Israel's back. That's a really simple message. You just tally it. You guys all know this. You've worked in politics. You don't need to give them a long speech, right? You're just talking to a 24 year old. They're just keeping a tally. Um, how am I doing? Um, I, I hate to complain. It's it's sort of because, you know, compared to my friends, family in Israel, right? My, the people I love there, you know, every night I go to bed and like, you know, I don't have to worry about anything, you know, my own safety or the safety of my parent, of my, of my family, of my kids. Um, it is very stressful. We're, I mean, we are, we are working basically nonstop, but it's a tremendous privilege to have this position right at this time um it, it is a lot of responsibility but it is mainly a privilege and you know it we all kind of we look at what's happening there we feel mostly you know we all kind of feel useless i only feel mostly useless not completely useless because i have work i can do here so um 
you know, should I like exercise more and eat better and sleep more? Absolutely. Um, um, but overall, um, I, 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 as I said, I love being Jewish and I love the work I do at the JCRC with my colleagues. We have a tremendous team uh, with a great leader in Steve Hunnigs and a very supportive board. I mean, our board, like they brought us meals. They, we just moved our offices. Like that's why there's nothing behind me. Not that you're getting your listeners can see that they emptied, they, they helped us unpack. Right. Cause like, well, what can we do? I'm like, well, we have all these boxes can help us unpack. So, and the community has been very appreciative. So overall in the midst of this horror, um, I think we're holding up okay, but thank you for asking. What is going to happen? Um, you discussed there's Wednesday. Going to be Wednesday, and then what can people do? Let's discuss Wednesday. There's What's happening on Wednesday? Wednesday? There's two things on Wednesday. First, the State Board of Investment is meeting on Wednesday morning. They meet quarterly. This is the governor, the attorney general, who I'm understanding is, is not going to be um, in town, the secretary of state and the state auditor. They are the State Board of Investment. There is going to be the quarterly call to divest from from Israel bonds and from um, also companies that, you know, like Israeli companies, uh, it's not going to go anywhere, um, but they're going to be loud. And, and so, and so we're planning a response to that. That's, I have seen, I have seen some of the very ugly wanted posters. Yeah. Up, up oh, around I, on social media. I, I haven't even seen those yet, but I'll, I'll have to look for them. Yeah. But then in the evening, um, the, the teachers are having their, their monthly meeting. Um, and, and we're not, you know, formally part of that. I'm not a member of education of, of the union. Um, they seem well-prepared. They're talking to their friends they're talking to their colleagues within the union. They're having good conversations. You really have to do this work. One teacher to one teacher to one teacher. Um, again, strong allies from people, from teachers who are not Jewish for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and we'll see, but I, I'm proud of, of how they're going about this by being um, transparent, right? Getting you know, this on the agenda, so people know what's going to be on the agenda. Getting the language out there, um, being positive, um, and focusing on kids. So um, I think in that way they've already won. But we'll see. You know, it, it's like it's like caucuses, right? It's like who shows up, right? Is it open to the public? It is not under, open to the public. It is just for members, um, which we, of course respect that. Also, contact the governor. The governor has been great, you know, and, and express your appreciation to him. Um, Contact, I would say, um, you could contact the speaker and uh, Melissa Hartman and majority leader and thank them as well. They've also been they've also been supportive. Um, uh, so far, Congress is, you know, I mean, with, with a few notable exceptions here in Minnesota, been been pretty good. Um, uh, but, you know, if you if you live in Congresswoman Omar's district or Congresswoman McCollum's district, um, it would be worth asking, why do you expect everything of Israel and nothing of Hamas? Right. Why do you expect everything of Israel and nothing of Qatar? Um, how on earth can you call for a ceasefire without demanding the immediate release of the hostages? Right. Uh, that's, I mean, I don't, I don't know where it's going to get you, you know, um, that's probably as far as I can go. I mean, we are a nonpartisan nonprofit, right. And so can't tell people like how to vote or, um, but you can certainly use your voice, but I, I, I can tell you that Klobuchar and Smith really need to hear from people. Um, they need to hear that um, the angry the angry few who are, who, I don't know if they have, I don't know what they do. They seem to have infinite amounts of time um, that they're, they don't speak for most Minnesotans who are just, you know, honestly, just trying to earn a living, right? <laughs> Take care of their family um, and, and just go about their lives. Ethan, I want to thank you for being here today and taking time to talk to us. I want you to know that can, you can consider us a resource 
should you ever need to, to come back on, we would welcome to have you back on under any circumstances. I hope the circumstances we have you on are better in the future, but please know you can rely on us to be a resource. Uh, should you need to talk and, and, and help, we can be helpful getting subject material, interviewing you or anyone from your organization or anyone else to be supportive to what you're dealing with and what the world is dealing with right now. So I just want to thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. I mean, really appreciated the conversation. It's been great. Jeff, we just spoke with Ethan Roberts from the JCRC, and we spoke with Mike Zipko, who offered a perspective on media and public affairs about media coverage and everything. Uh, give me your take on the conversation with Ethan. Um, that was uh, like a lot of the conversations we have, I think it was maybe not the most fun conversation, but an important conversation. There was a lot of tough stuff to hear. Um, Do you feel it? May I, may I say? Um, I feel that we have a responsibility to do this. And as much as I would, we could talk about other things, it seems try, it seems disrespectful to not cover these topics, right? Well, I think we, you know, the, I've made this point a few times now. I hate to keep beating the dead horse, but these things exist in the abstract. It's very easy to read, to skim the headlines, to, read some words in a story and just kind of take that and just go, okay, you take it in as fact, but you don't really stop and think about it. And having these longer conversations with people and hearing their stories and hearing their emotions and hearing the, the details forces you in some ways to really internalize what, what are they talking about? They're, they're literally talking about kidnapping children in front of their parents. They're literally talking about killing parents in front of their children and then kidnapping those children. That, that actually happened. Those are actual things that happen to actual children in the world. And that is, and, and that it didn't happen in the abstract. It happened far away from where we live, but it, it didn't happen. It's, it's not a movie script. It's not, it, it's that happened to people. It happened to people that, you know, that, that Ethan's probably a few degrees separated from, you know, friends of friends. Um, and so it's, it's not abstract. It's very real. And so when you, when you look at that and you, and you, and, and you really understand it, you start to see what the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers did through a new lens and exactly how evil that was and exactly how, how bad what they did was, you know, the, the, the even said a lot of horrible things. Um, not, not, uh, not that he was bad, but I mean, he, he described a lot of horrible things. One of the things that hit me the hardest was the juxtaposition between him at his ending, talking about how he loves to be Jewish and then talking about students in the Minneapolis school district who are hiding the fact that they're Jewish now. You know, we have had, we have heard, we have, there's been a lot of energy expended, particularly in the public school system, about people embracing who they are and having the right to be who they are. And a lot of it around sexual orientation or things like that, right? Um, People have, and you have a lot of teachers standing up and kids have the right to be safe at school and they have this. And then on the flip side, you have the teachers union 
literally taking a stance that makes kids feel like they need to hide who they are, that they can't embrace who they are, an intrinsic part of who they are. That's how they were born. There is no debate about the fact, you, you know, there is no scientific question as to, you know, you were born Jewish, you were born into a Jewish family. And now you have to hide who you are because a group of the teachers at your school who are supposed to be these adults who are looking out for you, but issue this hateful statement, basically saying that they hate you for who you are. And now you have to hide yourself because these teachers are, are so backwards. It, it's, it's enraging to me. And I cannot imagine, thank God for my kids' school and the fact that I am in a position to send my kids to a place where they are appreciated. I could not imagine being a Jewish family, having your kids in the Minneapolis public schools during this time. It, it, it's unimaginable to me how awful that must be. I, am, I was most taken aback by that. It was very difficult to hear. Uh, many of the things that Ethan said were incredibly difficult to hear. We have covered this subject on this podcast. This is the third episode. This was incredibly difficult, but I also think it's important and we have choices of what we cover, but I, I'm very appreciative that Ethan was willing to come on. I'm very appreciative of you, Jeff and Mike for coming on. Um, this is not easy material. We're diving into subjects that are very difficult and Ethan, this is his life. And it was for Jacob Milner, it was his life. And for Norm Coleman, it was his life. This is what they're dealing with 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have to deal with it. Um, you know, we can, in some ways, pick and choose when we deal with it based on, you know, what we're watching on TV, what we choose to live, what we choose to watch, how we choose to, and how we choose to just participate and view and observe this, um, this terrible, terrible situation that Israel is dealing with right now in relationship to Hamas and just the world overall. It is very difficult. And the fact that there are students in Minneapolis, as you articulated, and I won't repeat what you said because you said it better than I did. It's just appalling to think about. But I'm very appreciative that we have this space to have these conversations. I hope that people listen and it by elevating Ethan's voice and allowing him to speak from his truth, his view, his perspective on this, I think hopefully will change some of the perspective that people have. When I heard about this resolution, I immediately thought of, it was, I separated the two issues in which I have the luxury of doing. I separated from the standpoint of why is the school district going into this issue? And then the ugliness of their message. It's important to get into both because it's pretty clear that the process by which they used, they had selective bias in terms of their desire to weigh into this issue, number one. Then they used, I think, probably a less than transparent process to get this through and then third, it's the brutality of the message. And I understand to, to Ethan's organization and to a lot of people, it's the brutality of the message that should get the focus. But part of the reason I wanted to break it down further with you is because I think the how this message came about, how it was constructed, the format in which it was presented also shows a lack of respect, a level of anti-Semitism, a level of bias and hatred towards Jewish students, Jewish parents, Jewish teachers, and the entire Jew Jewish community served uh, by the Minneapolis uh, public school system, and that anyone that comes in contact with the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, it's just horrific to think. I cannot imagine with Ethan, 
is going through and his organization, other members of the Jewish community, as he was talking about the 80%. But this is, you just look exhausted. I mean, you look exhausted. And as the conversation went on, both Mike looked exhausted. I broke down at one point hearing Ethan speak. It's important that we still do this. And I don't want to take anything away from anyone else's uh, trauma and pain that they're going through. But we're a podcast and we want to do everything we can on the side of good against the fight of evil and providing Ethan a platform by which to speak and talk about the good and what needs to be done and providing a platform for his organization to have a voice was incredibly important. But make no mistake about it. It is, it, there is, it is very difficult here. Should I, uh, should I write to my member of Congress? You should. Do you think it's going to do, you think it's going to do any good for, uh, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I live in, uh, I live in the fifth congressional district, uh, Ilhan Omar's district. I feel like, uh, I feel like there's not any amount of, uh, of constituent feedback that could move her off of her, um, position. She was one of the first to, rush and uh and state that israel had bombed a hospital and killed uh was it 500 5000 i don't know whatever made up number of people that didn't die during an attack that uh was later proven not to have come from israel uh she's very quiet on her uh, corrections so when they when they come through so I will also say just, I don't want to be too much more of your time, Jeff, but just from just from a perspective of social media, the amount of misinformation that has come out from people that should know better, uh, that have election certificates and people of much more prominence and significance in this, in this discussion, in this debate, in this conflict than you or I, has been simply astounding. And the lack of willingness to correct and provide accurate information. I'm so fortunate that our perspectives Becky's perspective, Mike's perspective on the use of social media has always been to be responsible and put out accurate information. Yes, we have we have a bias. We have an agenda our, through our lens and our perspective. We have taken a very strong position on this podcast that we want to ensure every organization on the side of Israel, on the side of ensuring that every hostage gets home and every person that's on the side of in opposition to what Hamas and other terrorist organizations in the Middle East are doing to the degree which we can be helpful on our podcast, we will be. But I'm just very appreciative that we could have that discussion today. And to our listeners out there, both Jeff and I know Mike, it was just very difficult to listen to. And the reason I only reason I bring that up is because I hope people take to the, take from that the seriousness of the topic. It's very serious. And, and every word that Ethan said was important and should be listened to. So Jeff, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk about these issues with Mike and I and with uh, Ethan. We want to thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broadcob and Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can leave a review or give us a shout-out on our website or across all social media platforms at at BBBreakPod. The Breakdown with Broadcob and Becky will return next week. Thank you again for listening.